Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I'm Marianne Hitt, and this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we talk with Ann Friedman, co-host of Call Your Girlfriend, one of our all-time favorite podcasts. We chat about the intersection of climate change and feminism and her recent sober psychedelic adventure to the Great Barrier Reef. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. Hey there, Anna Jane. Hi, Marianne. Happy fall. Oh my gosh, I am so excited about this episode. We have Ann Friedman on the show. Welcome to any new listeners who are finding us for the first time because you are one of the many millions of fans of Ann Friedman, either because of her amazing podcast, Call Your Girlfriend, uh, along with Aminatu So, or her great writing for New York Magazine. Her podcast was an inspiration for us to start No Place Like Home, and so the fact that she agreed to join us and we got to have this really interesting conversation with her was really, honestly, for me, it was a highlight of this whole adventure of starting this podcast. And uh, it's exactly the kind of conversation I was hoping we would have when we started this over a year ago now, Anna Jane. And I can't wait to share it with folks. Totally. I loved it. It's one of my favorites as well. Before we dive in, there's one thing I wanted to share with you. It was in the Washington Post recently that I just found fascinating. So uh, the article, we can link to it in the show notes, is uh, about a study that's done every year from Chapman University. It's the fourth annual survey of American fears. And climate and pollution have suddenly shot up into the top 10 for the first time since they've been doing this. So let me, so what they do is they go down this long list of asking people things that they're afraid of. And it really is everything from like, not having money for the future to clowns and zombies. <laughs> like it's everything you could think of that people would be afraid of. I don't know how many things, like 50 things or something. And so they just have people say yes or no. Are you afraid of these things? And then uh, sort of tally them up. And for the first time, environmental issues broke into the top 10. They never have before. So water pollution or drinking water pollution are number three and four. And then climate change is number eight. And these things were like at the bottom of the list previously. So isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's, that is just so remarkable because in my entire climate activist career, ever, it's always been like, people care about the environment, but not that much. It's always towards the bottom of the list. So the fact that it's like rising to the top of the list is so striking to me, especially because there's a lot of scary things going on right now. But I think at least I don't want to say it's hopeful because I think it's probably because we've been seeing all these crazy climate impacts and people are really experiencing and feeling them in their lives. And also because of all the great campaigning work that you 
and and many others are doing. I do think it's um, maybe a turning point, or I, I want to hope so that that these issues are high on people's on my, people's minds, and that's going to generate change. Yeah, and, it's, and it's definitely a reflection of the Trump era. I think when people see polluter lobbyists being installed to head up all of the agencies that are supposed to be the watchdogs of our clean air and clean water, that that hits home. And honestly, in a more personal way than I would have expected, one of the things we talk about in our interview with Ann Friedman is about the importance of taking these very big systemic issues and bringing them kind of down to earth for people. I can't wait for folks to hear that part of the conversation because it was I had many epiphanies as we were talking to her. But I do think that we are in a moment now with whether it's the storms or the fires or what people are seeing in the news about all these terrible polluter lobbyists that are running our agencies that are supposed to keep us safe. Environmental <laughs> nah. protection agencies. That, you know, yeah. that's, that, that is actually like people are internalizing that and it's landing with them. And of course, we don't want people to be scared. Fear isn't necessarily the motivator of choice, but, um, but the reality is people are paying attention to this in, in a new way. So I just thought that was, that was fascinating. And that is not the only scary thing in the news. I mean, as we, <laughs> what's, what is in the news that's not scary, but uh, something else in the news that uh, I want to kick it over to you because that also came up a lot in our conversation with Anne. Obviously the Harvey Weinstein stuff is just um, everywhere <laughs> right now. And new allegations are, are coming out all the time, not just against Harvey Weinstein, but against all of these, um, all of these kind of powerful con- controlling dominant men, essentially, I've been thinking about a lot. And I was, uh, my partner Forrest's birthday was recently and we went rock climbing because he's a big rock climber. When I say we went rock climbing, I meant he went rock climbing and I sat in a chair next to him and read a book. That sounds like my (laughs) kind of rock climbing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So anyways, I had this novel on my my shelf for weeks now called My Absolute Darling. It was um, considered one of the best new novels of the past couple of years. It's a first time writer. But with fiction in particular, I have to wait until I have a good 24 hours free before I can read it because I will literally stay up all night and put off all of my responsibilities to find out what happens. Um, So luckily I had this uh, on this camping trip. And it's it's a stunning book. It, It really hit me for a couple of reasons. One, it talks a lot about climate change Um, and it's actually pretty like fairly educational and definitely you walk away from it feeling passionate Um, but you don't get engrossed in the story because you care about climate change or at least I didn't Um, you get engrossed in the story because of these characters um, who are just riveting riveting characters it's really a kind of a thriller of a story so the whole thing just kind of pulls you along but it interweaves this this conversation about climate change throughout it and it just I'm always thinking about how to interweave climate change into pop culture, into our kind of everyday lives and stories. And it was just another great example of, of how that's done really well. Um, but the other reason that it that it struck me is because it's the kind of the central character, the hero of the story is this young woman who is her name is Turtle and she's just phenomenal. But she so, so it's a story of abuse and there's a trigger warning there. Like there is actually a lot of um, very disturbing Things that happen, violence, both sexual violence and other kinds of violence that happen throughout the story. So don't pick it up if, if those things trigger you, or at least do some research before you do. But what what struck me is that the whole story is really kind of her becoming her own hero and really fighting back against this abusive re- relationship with her father and figuring out how to get um, out of this very toxic, dangerous situation 
Um, and so in that way, it kind of, it's an empowering story. But at the very afterwards, because I do this with all all things that capture my imagination. I was Googling the author and just like looking deeper into to why he wrote this book and what his story was. And he said something that really struck me. Um, he said, the two themes as were always linked in his mind. We harm the things most important to us. As Martin, who's the father, does to his daughter, as humanity does to the environment. And we do this because we fail to see that they aren't really ours. And I think you could also kind of thinking about it within the context of, of the Weinstein, you know, controversies and, and, and just this like huge, like wide scale uh, history of abuse of, you know, men towards women. And, you know, and I don't know, I just I feel like these things are kind of connected the sense like both this like culture of, of control and domination and um, and power well, mongering. And, and it does feel like that that is kind of being exposed in some way that it hasn't been before. I don't know exactly if that's the right way to put it, but it feels like it, that it's starting to come apart with, with these different scandals and different revelations. And also, um, you know, it, it, the, the sort of like domination industrial complex is <laughs> like starting to show some cracks. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, I don't know, it just does feel like this moment where that's, you know, certainly the exploitation and abuse of women is coming to light in ways that we really haven't grappled with as a, as a culture before on this scale anyways. And I think you're, you're kind of seeing that in, in some ways with how we exploit nature and 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 that's coming to light and there is this kind of connection of like basically we have to get rid of this culture of domination of expo and exploitation like we have to figure out cultural values that are nourishing and that honor our interdependence and interconnection and um that you know really are about taking care of each other not trying to to use or exploit well, each and other. I, it does feel you know there's uh lots of myths and stories of and that people have had throughout all of time about how, you know, resurrection comes after the darkest moment or how the birth of something new means that something old has to die. And it, you know, that that's just what I keep, I think we're in the middle of a moment like that right now. And it's hard to see to the other side of it. And sometimes um, you wonder if there's going to be another side of it, but I just have to believe in the, the like generative power of love, frankly, that, that now we're sort of, this is getting laid bare. It's also giving us the opportunity to, to build something new. And that's, that's what I, at least one thing I hope will come out of all this. And who, who knows, we can listen back to this podcast 10 years from now and, and uh, <laughs> see what actually happened. But it, it feels like and it is. as scary and dark as it all seems, it also feels like this is the moment for something new to be born. Yeah, I love that. Well, I love that we got to explore some of that also in our conversation with Ann Friedman. And again, uh, thanks to Ann for being on the show. Anna Jane and I are so excited to share this conversation with all of you. It is one of our favorites yet in the uh, one plus year history of No Place Like Home. So let's go to that interview right after this. Hi, my name is Melissa, and I'm from Toronto, Canada. Here's your dinner party climate facts of the week. According to a recent investigation of peer-reviewed climate studies, 97% of scientists agree humans are causing climate change.
Welcome, Ann Friedman, to No Place Like Home. We are so excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Well, we have brought you here because we love your podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. It actually was uh, one of the big inspirations for us to start this podcast. And we also love your writing. And we brought you here because you recently had a very cool experience that connects to climate change that we wanted to talk to you about, which was visiting the Great Barrier Reef. Can you tell us more about that? Okay, well, the first thing you have to know about me is I'm not an outdoorsy, like, great wonders of the world bucket list type of person. (laughs) Um, I do not subscribe to Outside Magazine. I own, like, very minimal outdoor gear. I'm, like, not someone who's, like, let me get to the remote, beautiful ends of the earth. But I went to Australia in early September because I was speaking at a conference in Sydney, and They were paying my way, and I had never been to the continent before. And so I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to take a few side trips. What should I see? And I asked people who subscribed to my weekly email newsletter who were Australian or who had visited. I asked friends. I asked friend of friends. And there were a few things that were consistent, you know, like go to this city or go to this bar or whatever. But by and large, everyone said, oh, you have to go to the reef because it's not going to be there forever. And if you wanted to take a side trip to, say, New Zealand, that will probably be there in 10 years, whereas the reef may not. So you should definitely do that on this trip, which is a really fatalistic way to plan <laughs> yeah. a vacation. Yeah, that's kind of a sobering, um, sobering vacation planning, things that will not be here in 10 years. <laughs> again, like I said, I'm not, you know, I'm not someone who is like a super outdoorsy adventure vacation type of person. I hadn't really would thought you describe about it. Yourself? Would you describe yourself more as the spa and relaxation vacation type of person? <laughs> yeah, like I like a mix of like being set in one place where I am like in a beautiful setting, but I'm like mostly stationary reading books in a beautiful setting <laughs> or like kind of living my normal life, but in a different city. Those are like my two speeds of vacation. And I have like an outdoorsy boo who I love very much, but and some Sometimes I get like, you know, sucked into more outdoorsy trips as a result, but I am mostly like if I'm the one doing the planning. However, I'm like, okay, this is like a truly beautiful part of the country. Um, There is a part of the Daintree rainforest in Queensland that extends almost to the coast. And so you can, you can sort of, and this is what I ended up doing with a friend of mine, plan your, plan your trip so that in the span of a few days, you can see two different world heritage sites like the reef and the rainforest. So the the synopsis is it was way, way, way cooler than I thought it would be, which sounds dumb given that it's like universally recognized to be one of the most majestic things on earth, but whatever. It was still way cooler than I thought it would be. Um, And I was really surprised by how many Australians who I later met in Melbourne and Sydney, how many people had never been and who were like, oh, like, how how was that? Was there anything left in this kind of, like, very jaded, very, like, accepting that it's all gone already way, which I, which I also did not expect. Like, I, I, you know, I mean, from what I had read, I was like, yes, bleaching is bad, things are bad, but, like, this is also a huge, um, you know, feature that is big enough to be visible from space, and it's, like, definitely not all gone. So it was like this interesting thing of like both the actual experience being way more jaw dropping than I thought it would be. And then also the reaction of Australians who learned that I went there being kind of like, kind of accepting that it was not long Mm -hmm. for this world. I love this story. I have a really, um, 
funny and amazing Great Barrier Reef story. I was like in college, so it was like over a decade ago. And I am also not a huge snorkeler. Actually, I had like a pretty severe fear of fish growing up, which is funny because I spent my summers on the water. But all that aside, they talked me into going out on the Great Barrier Reef. So we took the like two-hour boat ride and we got out there and these fish were like the size of my torso. And I was like, there's just no way, you guys. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to sunbathe. You go do your thing. Like, here to support you, but don't need this experience. And they went out and um, came back like 20 minutes later later, and like, Anna Jane, you have to come see this. (laughs) Like this is not an option. And so I made them hold my hands and we jumped past the really giant fish. And it was like, we saw this like 200 year old sea turtle and all these little Nemo's and just like this huge, gorgeous forest of, of coral in the Great Barrier Reef. So every time this like climate story comes up, it's like the reef is dying, you know, like it just hits me so hard because I'm like, I, it really makes me sad that people won't be able to experience that because it was such a magical experience for me. And it makes me really happy to hear that you recently went and it's still there and it's still gorgeous and totally worth seeing. It was definitely the most psychedelic experience I've ever had sober. (laughs) Wow, that's uh, that is quite an endorsement right there. They should put that on the brochures. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to I'm happy to be a spokeswoman for like psychedelic sobriety at the at the Great Barrier Reef. <laughs> and uh, and it's interesting that the folks you talked to thought it was all gone and and it was over with, and that was not your experience. What do you? Well, what was your experience, and what do you attribute that to? Well, I mean, my understanding is that there are some areas that are like completely bleached and or covered with like algae and muck that are effectively dead. Like, so I don't mean to be like, oh, it's totally fine. No big deal. But there are also large sections of it that to my totally newbie untrained eye seemed very full of life and very dynamic. And I think that that's part of it, you know, depends on where you go. Like, honestly, 90% of the reef could have been completely dead. And I could have gotten on like the one day tour that was going to the 10%. You know, I mean, it's not like I'm some expert. The experts say it is really bad. I think it's something like 65% of the reef is bleached or, or like algae covered or otherwise dead. So I mean, I don't mean to diminish the severity of the problem. And I think that Australians who have been reading the news and like, you know, seeing quotes from scientists about this major feature of the of the earth that's in their backyard are like are are right to be worried about like what's going on in its health. So I just like I want to say that first of all. But I mean, I also have nothing to compare it to. So I saw like a, a manta ray the size of a kitchen table flapping around and I saw amazing turtles and I saw like incredible fish and like every kind of coral you could imagine. I was David Attenboroughing so hard. And, (laughs) but I have no idea like what that landscape looked like 10 years ago, say when you were there or what, or seascape, it's not landscape, seascape. I, you know, I have no, I have no point of comparison. And so, um, I think that they're, they're definitely reacting to that. I mean, I also think that there's this sense of fatalism around things like coral reefs, because it's not like, um, say like a super fun site that you can be like, we're concentrated on cleaning up this area. And if we only had investment in this concentrated way or a policy change in this one region, we could fix it. Like this is like all of the ocean water is hot and acidic. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like the kind of thing that feels like easily reversible and it, you can't, you know, like even if 
all the politicians in Australia decided they cared, which they definitely have not. Um, they, it's not like there would be one policy change that would be like, okay, we've fixed the reef. And I think that's part of the fatalism. I'd love to take that from one step to another issue that I know you care a lot about that can also feel kind of big and overwhelming, which is obviously feminism. And, the, and every day it seems like the news is some other sort of horrific revelation for women. And I feel like you have done a great job with Call Your Girlfriend of taking something that could seem big and overwhelming and unsolvable and humanizing it and personalizing it and breaking it down into how it connects with people's everyday lives. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that we are attempting to do with this podcast. And I feel like we need to do just in general on climate change is bring it down from something big and overwhelming and unstoppable and into people's everyday lives and uh, just connect it more in a, in a less overwhelming way. Do you have any thoughts about how we could do that better when it comes to climate change, how to talk about it in a way to make it less overwhelming, how to tell better stories based on your experience with your writing and with Call Your Girlfriend? Ugh, I mean, people who are way smarter than I am about these issues, I think are still struggling to find the right answer to that question. I mean, I guess... The, to, or maybe to how, the how have you done it is... is Because uh, yeah. I, I feel like you've done it well, even if it's sort of maybe subconsciously, but I feel like you, you do it beautifully. Well, I think every big issue is experienced by people in small, everyday ways. It's not like you know, ingrained centuries old sexism is an experience. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we experience that through the, the, at, yeah, the way our policies are, like the attitudes of like, you know, men we work with or like the way um, work is and labor is divided inside our homes and like a million, a million other ways that like things that don't feel overtly political or like capital F feminist. Um, I do think that the environment is pretty similar in that like, okay, like we don't feel the effects of, um, you know, human, human accelerated climate change <laughs> in like this big way where I'm like, oh yes, it does feel like the temperature of the earth has increased by a degree or whatever. <laughs> you know, we, we know, we experience that through like extreme weather events potentially, or we experience that through like, the air quality in our cities or like, I don't know, there's a bunch of different, there's a bunch of different lived experience, like points where, where that happens. And I think, um, you know, the, the trick for me when it comes to gender issues is saying like, okay, how do I connect to someone on a level of a more minor lived experience or a smaller lived experience? And how do I pull back the lens and say, this is how this connects to a systemic issue, um, a big thing. And, you know, and sometimes for me, that means not always striving to say, and here's what you can do about it. Like, I think sometimes I see my job as um, connecting dots or saying, like, especially when it comes to things for women, you're not crazy. Like, I write a lot of things in the you're not crazy vein. Like, this is happening to a lot of people, you know, this is, you know, a bigger, a bigger issue than just like you in some personal struggle. Because the other thing about big systemic issues is like, no one, no one is looking to take responsibility. No, no individual can take responsibility. And so it can feel like it's on, you know, it's on you as someone who's experiencing it to, to fix it or like that you're all alone. And so part of my role is just pulling the lens out and connecting. Yeah, I love off. that. I had, I recently had somebody I mentioned earlier, I was raised evangelical and, um, I was at this like event of other people who were raised evangelical and who were kind of in this post evangelical figuring out our 
lives and spirituality space. And this pastor got up and was like, you guys aren't crazy for feeling this way. And it was so liberating just to be right. like, oh, oh, we're not. And there's so many other people out here who are experiencing this disconnect and feel kind of lost. And we're not crazy. Um, it's such a powerful story to tell. Yeah, completely. And I think that sometimes it can be hard for me to to stop there and not to do ha, like end every article like with, and here's what you can do. But, you know, there's also a recognition that like, we're all on these kind of like simultaneous journeys as they relate to all of these intersecting oppressions in the world and injustices and saying like, okay, you know, like this article is for people who are getting their heads around their personal experience. And like, if they want resources about what they can do next, then I'm going to trust that they can Google for those, or I'm going to trust that like this other thing I write might serve them. And, and I think that, you know, one way to, do those kind of like four or five things instead of 1 million that I was talking about earlier is to realize that like other people are working on other pieces of this. I love what you said about, about figuring out how these big systemic things show up in people's everyday lives. Um, so I run this big campaign at the Sierra club where we are working on retiring coal plants and replacing them with renewable energy. And we have now over half the coal plants in the United States announced to retire and they are our biggest source of climate pollution and primarily how we have done that is by connecting the daily like the parents of children with asthma who may not realize their kids asthma attack is linked to a nearby coal plant or people with contaminated water who are only discovering it's contaminated by a coal plant and so it is in some ways taking a systemic issue and connecting it to people's everyday lives but I think Still, when it comes to climate change, that's hard to do, and we haven't done a great job of doing it. And I think that we have especially not done a great job of that for women, when women are, um, you know, they're likely to be the hit hardest by climate change, especially poor women and women of color who are uh, either in places where the environment is changing really rapidly or who are responsible for gathering wood and fetching water and, uh, you know, doing all these things that are getting harder and harder to do in a changing climate. So, um, so th I think that we haven't done a great job of connecting climate to the everyday lives of women. And, uh, and I, that's something that Anna Jane and I want to try to do with this podcast, but in your experience, is it coming up? Like, is it coming up when you go to conferences? Is it coming up in conversations or is it, is my perception right that so far we haven't done a great job of, of bringing that down into the daily lives of women? I don't know. I mean, I'm, as I'm listening to you talk about that, I'm thinking about, some of the women I know, particularly moms who are like outside of the big coastal cities who are like super, super into making sure their kids eat like everything organic and are like really into knowing what's in all the products in their house. Right. And like that feels very different. And like the idea of like consciousness about what's in your home and what's in your body at least in my perception, felt more like kind of a hippie thing. Like when I was a kid, no women in my family were like, oh my God, you can't eat like, <laughs> you know, like this sort of like weird synthetic candy yeah. or like, you know, <laughs> we, we can't have a cleaning product with these toxic chemicals. Like that was just not on the radar. And like now I think that like things that are very harmful for the environment in this macro way are like negative for you, like a negative elements also in your home in like a more micro way. And I feel like there's a lot of like pseudoscience or like un <laughs> uncontrolled like Facebook sharing about that stuff that I see too. But the impulse to kind of say like, okay, part of being a parent is making sure that I'm like not inadvertently poisoning my kid with this stuff. 
And I don't know, like it's it's definitely minor compared to when you think about like women in countries that are going to be most affected by like extreme shifts in the climate, right? Like the idea of like, okay, like I don't want my kid to ingest, you know, or like be near this, this like toxic cleaning product is one thing, but like, oh my God, like actually the quality of my life is going to be like diminished because I'm going to become a climate refugee. Like you can't even compare those things, right? As things get worse overall, like there are more and more personal, personal touch points for this issue. And I, I think that like, you know, potentially connecting with women who care about this stuff when it comes to their own bodies and their own families and saying like, okay, well here, if you pull the lens out is what it's doing overall. I think that there's like, there's a lot of potential there, but I also think it's a long game. And I think that that is what I tend to get scared about, particularly when it comes to the environment, right? Because like when you talk about gender issues, it's like, right, we have been playing a long game, right? Like it's always been a long game. And I just like, when I read like, when I read the science about like what needs to happen and when, to avoid what it gets pretty intense pretty fast definitely something that i think about in light of the harvey weinstein monumental conversation that it started about you know women abuse of women and harassment of women and the fact that trump is our president and all i just feel like there's just kind of been this onslaught of conversation around how these egregious and lecherous men are still running our world and still um, creating the narratives that you know in many industries that we live by and i just i it inspired me to get out my ecofeminist textbooks because i am one of those like nerds who still keeps all of my textbooks from college. <laughs> and one of I was just rereading it, and this one quote struck me. Um, it was, "Women must see that there can be no liberation for them and no sol- solution to the ecological crisis within a society whose fundamental model of relationships continues to be one of domination." I feel like that is like that's an interesting like societal value that shows up in both like ecological abuse and abuse of women and and all kinds of uh, oppressed entities and, and people. And I don't know, I was just thinking a lot about that concept of like domination as a societal value and how it plays out. And I was curious if it was, it feels like there's this overarching thing that's starting to break down, um, hopefully. Do you like feel like the tip of the iceberg is kind of shifting and we're, we have an opening to kind of rewrite some of these fortunate patriarchal values that we've been living by for centuries? To speak directly to what I was saying before is I'm, I really, really feel that this is a long game. And I think that there are moments where there is a bit of a breakthrough or like, you know, things in specific industries or specific like ways power is organized, like that, that they break open or change like that. There are moments of breakthrough for sure. But mostly, I mean, when I think about stuff like, yes, like a dominance model being part of the problem completely, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think that like we're all working to get free for a really long time. Like it's like I still see like a really long game. And I I also am like a little bit of a skeptic. I do recognize that in the situations of like who is doing, who is perpetuating the abuse here, like who is abusing power, we're seeing like men over and over and over again, right? Like, I mean, it's every everyone who is pretty, I mean, like uh, the, the people who are coming forward as survivors, you know, some of them are men as well. But like when we talk about perpetrators, not exclusively, but like the vast, vast majority are, are definitely men. And I'm not someone who is hopeful that like, if 
um, you know, one woman is in charge of a corporation and that corporation is like a feminist utopia or something like that. Like I, I really, um, and I'm also not convinced that if there were a broad shift in power, which is to say like, um, like maybe there's a 50 50 split in the leadership of like every important institution that shapes our world. I don't really know how that would look different if the underlying values remain the same. And so like right now I see like, you see a lot of this with kind of like what people would call like white feminism or trickle down feminism, right? Like the idea that you get one woman in the CEO position and things miraculously change, like is not true. Or like things get way, way better for women who are white collar workers. And then therefore like it's been a feminist victory, like not so much. And so I think that like all of this stuff is so intertwined and it's such a long game. I mean, I did a I did an interview um, over the summer with Alicia Garza, who's one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, and she really like underscored this point for me, and I've been thinking about it a lot, which is just like you're here to kind of move things along, like the next step, and you're here to like be engaged with all the complicated ways that these things are playing out, and the best you can hope for is like a positive change in your lifetime and that it's going to be one in a chain of like positive changes <laughs> and like you know there's a way in which that's kind of a depressingly long game and there's another way where i'm like okay you know like that feels like something that's worth working toward and so i don't know what to make of the, this moment in terms of men's abusive behavior getting identified more publicly how whether and how to feel hopeful about that but i do think that look, like if we want to, if we want this behavior to stop, we have to start talking about it. And so in that way, it feels like part of a step. And I think that, you know, that's the way I feel about incremental positive change on like a lot of different fronts. Well, another way you're helping, I think, is by trusting your own voice as a woman and encouraging others to do the same by your example. And you certainly were an inspiration to us in trusting our own voice and starting a podcast as two ladies. So thank you for your voice and thank you for your inspiration. And it has really been truly an honor to have you on our show. Oh my God. I'm so glad you're doing this. I'm so, so pleased that like women are owning the conversation of like what is happening to the world. And so I love, I love what you're doing. It's been such a pleasure to be here. Also, let's go snorkel together sometime. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. That just about does it for us. Marianne and I want to thank y'all so much for listening. And huge thanks to our sponsor, the Sierra Club, and to the great band River Wireless for our theme music. This episode was produced by podcaster extraordinaire Zach Mack. Subscribe to us on iTunes and please also leave us a review on iTunes. This helps us out so much and helps us get the word out to even more people. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and we will be posting all of our episodes and our updates and information at our Twitter page, which is at NPLH Podcast. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or want to be part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there is no place like home. Thank you.